You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Amy, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. I don't want to start today's episode with an anecdote the way I usually do. By pulling up some life story and using it as an intro into what we are going to be talking about today. Because in this episode, I don't want to pretend that I understand, that I've been there, or that I've walked in my guest's shoes. I haven't. Amy and I are complete strangers. She was referred to earn and invest by my dear friend, Mindy Jensen. I have gone out of my way to learn almost nothing about her because I want this conversation to be raw, unprepared for, and unintentional. I know almost nothing of her story or of her except, of course, one thing. Hey, everybody, I'm going to do something today that I rarely do. I'm going to ask you a favor. For the next two months, I am doing a survey on Earn and Invest. This will help me figure out how to best serve you, my audience, as well as let's tell the truth, there are going to be some advertisements on the show. So I'd like to make sure those advertisements at least fit you and who you are in order to do that, we need to know more about you. If you go to earnandinvest.com slash survey, again, that's earnandinvest.com slash S-U-R-V-E-Y. It'll only take a few minutes. Tell us about yourself, and then we can make Earn and Invest a better podcast and have it fit your needs better. On top of that, Airwave Media is going to enter you to win a $500 Amazon gift card if you go ahead and tell us about yourselves. Go to earnandinvest.com slash survey. Again, this will be for the next few months, and I would totally appreciate it if you would check it out. Amy, welcome to Earn and Invest. Let's start from the beginning. Tell us about the worst day of your life. Well, the worst day of my life was September 15th, 2021. That morning, I got a phone call around 8.30 that my husband, who had been away on a bike camping trip, uh, had been in, in a serious accident. And that call came from a friend of his to whom I had never spoken before. And my first question was about my husband. And I said, is he conscious? And his friend Jake said, no, but he has a heartbeat and the ambulance is here. And so from there, I got information on what hospital I needed to go to to meet that ambulance. 
And I dashed around grabbing a few things and I got in the car and I started driving and it was a hospital that was only about 25 minutes away. So I didn't really know almost anything. I had no idea what I was walking into. There was actually one previous time in our, in our marriage where I'd gotten a similar phone call and I was, I was remembering that. And that time it wasn't about a, a bike camping trip. He had been on a business trip and he'd had a seizure on the airplane. And so when he got off the airplane, he, he was taken to a hospital, but he was the one that called me that time. But even so, you know, a seizure, that's a neurological event. So who knows what could happen after that? And so when I was driving to the hospital that time, many years ago, I was thinking like, you know, oh my God, who knows what could have happened since, you know, the brain is very mysterious. He could be dead by the time I get there. And very, very thankfully that did not turn out to be true. I got there. He was okay. We got through it. Um, And so as I drove to the hospital on September 15th, that's what I was kind of holding on to. The fact that I'd been in this position before and it had turned out okay. But on this day, I I got to the hospital and there was initially some confusion where they told me that no, his ambulance, which was an air ambulance, a helicopter that had not come here. And I was really confused. And I I walked out the doors and I'm making phone calls. And then and then it came out that no, this really was the place. And I went back in and and there was a woman at reception who had seen me before. And she was like, no, he's here. Have a seat. They'll be with you shortly. And I was sitting in this, you know, hospital waiting area, just the very outside lobby. And two people came to two men. One was dressed in scrubs and one was in street clothes. And I just, I had a very bad feeling. You know, I I didn't know what I was going into, but it was seeming pretty bad. And they were being super nice to me and they weren't giving me any information. And they walked me to some back room in the further reaches of the hospital. And they sat me down and they asked if I wanted water. And they kept talking about, you know, the doctor will be here any moment. And a doctor got there and he started saying a lot of words that I wasn't really processing. He wasn't hitting me with a ton of information, but what I took away from the conversation was like, well, this happened and we tried this and it didn't work. And then we tried this and it didn't work. And we tried this in the ambulance and it didn't work. And I, he was like going on and on, it felt like. And I cut him off at a certain point and I just said, is he gone? And he said, yes, he's gone. And This was still during COVID and I had a face mask on and he had a face mask on and no one could see each other's faces. And I was, I was shocked. I was, I'll never forget it, but also I don't spend too much time remembering that part either. So that, that was the beginning of the, of the worst day of my life. What the heck had happened to him? I mean, was this something internal to him or did he have an accident? What caused all this? Yeah, he was in an accident. Um, he had been bike bike camping in the mountains with his friend, and they were on their way home that morning. And you know they're going downhill because they had they had been in the mountains, of course, and they're going pretty fast. Um, I later found out he was going about twenty five miles an hour, which on a bicycle is pretty fast. And it was in a section of road that was very windy. We still uh, honestly don't know and never will exactly why, but for some reason he lost control of his bicycle and he flew off. And there was a guardrail there, a metal guardrail, and he hit it with his head and his neck. Hmm. Obviously, we're young people, right? So was this something you had ever even thought about before? Like this concept of my spouse could die? Was that even in your wheelhouse before this happened? We thought about it and talked about it very abstractly. Usually, 
maybe if there would be a story on the news or I don't know, something that made it cross our mind. We had talked about, you know, what we wanted done with our bodies or our remains in the event of our death. Again, not in a serious way, not in a way that we ever documented, but in like a conversational way. And we had also talked, you know, sometimes there's those articles or books that come out about when a spouse dies and how like, obviously it's a terrible situation, but one of the aspects that makes it really terrible is that half of your collective knowledge and skills are gone. So like in any marriage, there's a division of labor and like one person handles one thing and the other person handles the other half. And and we had talked multiple times about just the sadness and overwhelming you know, feelings that must be to have to take over everything. Um, so we had, we had addressed it in our, in our ways, but we had never done anything formal. We had never written anything down about our wishes. We had never made a will. We had never created a trust. So, so some of each, I guess, yes and no. When you're in that moment, obviously you're consumed with grief, when did those other things start creeping into your mind? Like, oh my God, there's these things I don't know, or oh my God, we didn't plan for this, or what am I going to do now? Was that something you felt immediately, or was that something that kind of took some time to start seeping into your consciousness? That took some time, some days, I'd say, like maybe a handful of days. The beginning was just so much about shock, just spacing out and staring at the walls and not eating and people in and out of the house. And then you're thinking about a, a memorial or a service and what's that going to be like and when and where. And and all this is happening at a time when you're least equipped to handle it, right? Like your brain is just so, it's just, it's in shock. And so that's a very, a big surprise for me at the time was how physical of an experience that was, to be honest. My hands were clammy for like six weeks. Uh, just these things that, you know, your your cortisol levels, you're so jacked up all the time. You can't rest. It was very stressful. But so a handful of days later is when I started thinking about, you know, more of the the nitty gritty and the logistics of of what was going to have to happen. And part of the reason that came up for me was because all of our auto payments for our mortgage, for our utilities, all these things, they were all tied to an account that my name wasn't on. And I knew my name wasn't on. That wasn't that part wasn't a surprise. We had had separate finances at the beginning of our marriage. And over over the years, we had basically fully incorporated, but we had never bothered to like finish up the administrative aspects of that, like putting each other's names on all of our accounts. So a thing that was top of mind was really about the house. At the beginning, it was like, oh no, you know, the mortgage payment needs to get pulled out. But I had had to notify the bank of his death, which meant that account was frozen, the account that like funded all of our everyday stuff. So that was kind of the beginning of, of that process. Yeah, something to think about, and we can talk about it more later, right? This idea of a transfer on death, right? Lots of bank accounts have a designation for transfer on death. For different accounts, there's beneficiaries, et cetera. We don't often think about those things until we get stuck in a position. I want to go back to kind of before this happened, what was your financial situation? Like, were you guys well off? Were you investing? Like, what? How, how was the money in your life before this happened? Yeah, we were in a really good place. We had spent many years striving toward the goal of financial independence. And we had reached that goal in June of 2020. So 
that was a really big deal for us. And, and like, like many people, I think when you're, you're reaching for financial independence, it sort of happens slowly and then all at once. So it's like, okay, you're, you're chipping away and then all of a sudden you're there and okay, what now? So when that happened for us, Phil had just recently started a new job with a company that he really loved. And he had a team that was great and it was a work culture that he really loved. And this was really the kind of place he had been trying to find his entire career. So he didn't want to stop working. He wanted to give it another year or so and see what this was going to be like. And that was great. And in my case, I went back to school, which was a a thing I had thought about for a long time. I had begun to think about eventually teaching English at community college. And so I was taking the steps to be able to do that. And so that was kind of where we were professionally at that time. But financially, you know, we were we had reached financial independence. He had continued to work for the following, you know, year and change before, you know, right up until he died. And so there there was enough money. I didn't think like, oh, I'm going to lose the house or, you know, that my life was going to change in, you know, some huge material ways. So I was really lucky in that regard. Who handled the nuts and bolts of your financial lives? Like often one partner does one part and another, the other partner does another. Like who did your investing? Who did your paying of the bills? Was that something you guys split or was it either him or you? Yeah, it was a mixture. I handled a lot of the bills, the utilities, the mortgage, but he handled the investments, the long-term financial planning sort of gaming out different scenarios in terms of financial independence and what sort of buffer do we need, taxes and optimization. Honestly, he handled like the more difficult parts. He was a software engineer and definitely had an engineer's brain and just was very well suited to that kind of work. Whereas I was better suited to the like, you know, okay, the the utility bills need to be on auto pay. We're going to set them up from this account where, you know, I just sort of handled those He didn't have a high tolerance for what I call life admin, you know, Mm -hmm. logging into the different accounts and making sure they're working. And and I did. That's something I was very good at. So so we sort of split things in that way. So you're dealing with the grief, the trauma, you're numb, you're going through those first few days, just trying to get the memorial set up, all those difficult things that you had to do. And then you start worrying about the mortgage. Tell me how that dawned on you. Like, was there a moment where you're like, okay, I've been in control of our finances. We're financially independent. The money's there. Did you have this moment of, oh my God, now things are out of control or these things are happening I didn't plan for? Well, it's hard to pinpoint it to a specific moment, but yes, that definitely was slowly, it was creeping up on me and I was, I was feeling very it sounds odd to say, but threatened is the word that comes to mind Mm. because I knew that this was going to be messy in some, in some ways, particularly resolving the disparate pieces of our financial picture. I didn't know all the ways that that was going to be messy. Exactly. I just knew that it was going to be hard and was going to take a lot of doing. And I was worried about it. I found out the, the real tipping point, the part that where it did start to get scary was when I learned that some of our previous assumptions about what happened if a spouse dies were wrong. So when I, when I say that, what I mean is that we had had many conversations around our assumption that if something happened to one of us, 
that all of our assets would automatically revert to the other. We believe that because we were married and had been for nine years, like, of course, this is what would happen. I brought up the fact that we should get a will in place many times. But the reason why I thought we should was in case we both died, like in some sort of car crash or plane crash. We don't have children. We were childless by choice. And so I, you know, we hadn't really bothered to figure out what would happen if both of us died. And so when I would say that, hey, we should get a will, you know, we should get around to this and he would brush it off. It was just like, okay, whatever. But, you know, if something happens to just one of us, that's no big deal. We don't have to worry about that because we're married. But, but after his death, a handful of days after is when I learned that that's not exactly true. It varies from state to state, but in our state, in our particular situation, being married, but with him having living parents, that actually meant that his parents were entitled to a piece of his estate. And it was getting that information that was a real tipping point for me into when things got really scary and and really worrisome. If you don't mind going there, I mean, the next question would be why? Like, normally we'd think about, you know, a grieving widow if money was possibly going to the parents instead of the grieving widow, you would imagine that they would say, oh, well, here, this is your money. You're under enough stress as it is. That was not necessarily the case for you. That was not the case. I thought it would be the case at a certain point in time, but it wasn't. The way that this unfolded, you know, I got that information, you know, a handful of days after Phil died that they were entitled to this legally. And shortly after, not just for that reason, but just in a broader way, anything that has to go through probate, that means you need an estate attorney. You have to start filing paperwork with the courts. There has to be an executor appointed, all those things. So that all happened. And I was appointed executor. And there came a point when his parents who are divorced, they were going to be notified as you know, legal beneficiaries to this estate that, that this was happening. And I didn't want them to get the news just from like a letter from the court, you know, like we had a good relationship at this time. We had never had reason to not be open with each other or not be loving with each other. So I wanted, I wanted to give them this information from me and I was closer to one parent versus another. And so I chose that parent to begin with. And it was actually at Phil's memorial service because I didn't really want to have the conversation that day, but nobody lives geographically close. So I didn't know when we would next be together. And so I asked if I could have a few minutes and we sat down and I said, look, you know, I want you to know you're going to get this letter in the mail and here's why. You know, I also want you to know that, you know, Phil and I had no idea this could happen. And and this isn't like you're being willed this money. It, it's just, this is what the law says. And that parent they said to me, you know, Amy, I want what Phil would want and you're the best person to know what that is. So if you think the money should stay with you, then that's what I want to. And I was so relieved to hear that. And, and that's what I had expected to happen, but still I didn't know for sure. So that's what they told me. And then that was in October. And a couple of months later in December, I got notification through my attorney that they had retained counsel and that they were intending to take this money. I can't imagine what that must have felt like at the moment. Tell me the range of the emotions you must have gone through. Oh, gosh, it was a very large range. The first and, and hardest was just the, the colossal betrayal 
that I felt, not just for me, but also of Phil, of my husband. I didn't, and I still don't honestly understand how this could be rationalized in really any way. So betrayal is the first thing that comes to mind. And then when I mentioned the word threatened before, that word comes up again too, because as anyone in the financial independence community knows, you know, when you're planning your FI number, you have, you know, certain parameters in mind and other family members walking away with well over six figures of your money is not one of the factors we ever planned around, right? So I knew it was going to reduce my safety buffer and my margin of error and was and was just going to really complicate things. So that that's just the financial aspects, right? But the relationship aspects were the worst ones and still are because, you know, in the grief literature refers to things like this as secondary losses. Mm-hmm. So like the, you have your initial loss, you know, your person dies and that is horrible and awful and Honestly, it's been more than a year and a half, and I am still uncovering new aspects of what that means to me. So that that's like the first big central thing is that that person is gone. But then the secondary losses can be many other things. For some people, that means, you know, they can no longer afford their home and they have to move. And that's another loss. And luckily, I wasn't in that situation. But this particular thing, there's the loss of of this money that they got to have, but also these relationships. You know, these were the two other people that knew and loved Phil the most. And now I don't see a way that I can have them in my life. I don't, maybe a bigger person could. I I can't, I don't see that right now. It feels like such an undermining of, of everything that Phil and I worked for and built together and planned. So, so that, that level of loss, it's just, it's like needless. It's like, okay, he died and there was nothing anyone could have done about that. But the stuff that has happened since this fallout, that didn't have to happen. That's just, it's just extra grief and loss that has been piled on. And it's been really, really horrible. But you said they got lawyers. Has this part been resolved? So they actually were entitled to a part of his estate and that has now happened. They've got, they were allowed to have some of his money or some of your money, actually. Thank you for that clarification. Yes, they were allowed to have some of our money and most of that has been distributed to them, most of what they're entitled to. There was a small amount held back in escrow because the estate itself, they have to, it has to file a tax return for 2022 that hasn't yet been filed. And then maybe it's owed or maybe it will owe money. And then there are some legal fees that still have to be taken care of. And then what, of whatever's left, they'll get a percentage. So going back to the story, in a sense, he died intestate, right? This is the term that they use for not having a will. Had you guys done any estate planning up to that point? Had you had done anything formal? Nothing formal, no. And it's only really in retrospect that you realize how irresponsible that was of both of us to have built everything that we did and to have achieved this wonderful dream of financial independence, but to have given no thought at all, um, or at least no formal direction um, to our next of kin, so to speak, was was not great. And it's something that, you know, now for me in the, in the, you know, several months later, I, I went down a path of, you know, making sure that my own estate now is really buttoned up and I have set up a trust and I have, you know, power of attorney and medical directives and financial directives and all the things that I wish that we had done in advance, but we did not. So tell me about the probate process. I mean, it's something that all of us are a little bit afraid of. We hear people talk about it all the time. 
the saying that if you don't have an estate plan, well, your state has an estate plan for you. Walk us through some of the difficulties of dealing with a loved one who's died who doesn't have a will, who basically you have to go through the court system. Yeah, it's very tricky. So I I would say that the first thing that comes up is you have to hire an attorney, right? You have to find one. And that's not that easy. I mean, you can like find someone in the yellow pages, but if you're a sort of research-oriented, optimizing kind of person like many of us are, that's kind of not good enough. You know, you want one that's recommended. You want one that has good reviews and that takes some legwork. Um, and the thing is, you're being asked to do this legwork at the time when you are absolutely the least prepared, right? Because you're dealing with so much other stuff. So you have to find an attorney and then there's paperwork that has to get filed. An executor must be appointed. And then you have to notify the banks. Any Anywhere that's holding an account in this person's name, you know, has to be notified. And then that triggers various processes on their ends. You know, some places handle it differently. Um, the main bank that we were using was Charles Schwab at this time and still is. And they were amazing. They had a specific estate department that was like, this is who you talk to if there's been a death. And I got a person, I knew her name, I had her direct email address and her direct phone number, and she was able to help me through all the various stages. But essentially the account in question was frozen and then it had to turn over into a different type of an account, an estate account. And then from that account, I as executor could use it for certain expenses, legal fees were allowed or court filing fees, that kind of thing. But I could no longer use that money to like pay our mortgage or our bills as it had been doing for years. So it required some scrambling on my part to free up cash in other places just for, you know, living until I could eventually access that money. And I didn't, I wasn't actually able to access that money to live off of for more than a year. Hmm. So the process varies, I know, depending on the circumstances, but it can be quite long. What did you do in that time? Did you have other assets that happened to be just in your name or like, how did you support yourself? I did. Yes. There were other assets that were in my name and there were other accounts that were in his name, but for which I was designated as the beneficiary. So these, those came to me fairly quickly. There was a small amount of life insurance from his company, sort of like the blanket policy everyone gets at many companies. So that came after several weeks, but so many things had so many steps before they could work, right? Like with the life insurance, they needed to like review the toxicology reports, which came from the autopsy. And that report didn't come until many weeks after the autopsy had actually taken place. So I can definitely see scenarios where if you weren't so lucky, if you didn't have other assets you had access to, you could definitely be in a real big bind because a lot of your stuff could be frozen and then you would be scrambling. So part of my goal in, in talking with you and, and other folks is just to educate people on what could possibly happen. And that's one of the things you could find yourself locked out of, of all your money. And you guys being financially independent, didn't have term life insurance anymore other than what he had from work. Correct. Cause, Cause insurance pays out pretty quickly. Yes. It could take a week or two or three, but life insurance pays out pretty fast. Yeah, in this case, I want to say it took some months, maybe three months or so. And I don't know a lot of the reasons why, but also a lot of this, like there's so much to do. There's so much administrative work that has to happen to close down someone's life. I would estimate 
somewhere between three and 400 hours of work that I have spent over the last year and a half. And there are still tasks that are ongoing that are not fully resolved. And that doesn't even include like dealing with his personal possessions, you know, our closet, his clothes. That's just like on paper with banks, with insurance companies, with car companies, that sort of thing. It's just a massive, massive amount of work. And everything seems to hinge on some other thing. And again, you're dealing with this at a time when your executive functioning is so diminished. I was taking notes everywhere. I I used a Trello board to effectively manage the aftermath of my husband's death because my short-term memory was totally shot, right? I wasn't remembering what Tara from Schwab told me or what Pratima from the mortgage company was telling me. And it was really important to capture those details. It just, it required, yeah, some significant scaffolding of, you know, just tools to get through it. We are talking to Amy, whose husband died intestate without a will, and the fallout that followed. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing. And there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals. And let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave. And two minutes later, You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use. 
quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Amy, who had to deal with the fallout after her husband died unexpectedly without a will. Amy, let's talk about costs, both physically and emotionally, as well as financially. How much did this cost you in the end, the fact that he didn't have a will? Wow, that is a great question. I would, wow, I mean, <laughs> so there's there are many aspects to that answer, right? There's like the money that his parents got to walk away with, which is a very large chunk. There is the money that had to be spent in legal fees, which is another chunk. And then there's money that has gone to things that he used to do in our relationship sort of things that he handled, a big one of which is I now work with a financial advisor, which we never did before. Like many five people, we're very independent and very optimized, but he was the one that handled those things. And in the aftermath of his death, I did not feel equipped to like go in and learn all of this. And while all this money is moving around from different accounts and we're rolling over things, I felt so overwhelmed, very much like a deer in the headlights. I didn't like, I know that index funds are good, obviously. Like I know that much. I know about the 4% rule. I'm fairly educated, but I, I could not have told you at that time, you know, the specific things that I should be invested in or, or what my ratio should be. Because now also I was in this sudden position of living off this money. Whereas before we still had income coming in. So all these factors go into whatever that price tag is, but I'd say uh, we're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of $175,000 to $200,000. The the market shifts in this past year have been part of that. You know, if you asked me this question a year ago and whatever, but that's the best I can put on it for right now. And how are your finances today? Do you still consider yourself financially independent? I do. I'm very fortunate in that I do. And a large part of that is because we did have some significant buffers built in. So even with this loss, I was able to absorb some of that. And additionally, of course, the life insurance was never an expected source of income, right? So that actually ended up covering most of the money that went out. So sometimes the way that I think of it is that I'm now left with essentially what we had when he died which is nice in one way but on the other hand i feel like i feel like saying that absolves his parents of too much and so i'm i i'm very conflicted about looking at it that way if that makes sense tell me about how you feel about money today has this traumatic event that you've gone through changed how you interact or deal with money that's a great question i would say that with money today i am still very much on guard I feel I feel defensive and that I really need to protect what I have because I just saw, you know, how things can be shaken up and taken away with zero notice and with 
not a lot of logic and with terrible feelings attached to that. So I feel very much in a protective state. Like I mentioned, I do work with a financial advisor now, and that has brought me so much relief and peace of mind. In the long term, I know that probably I could figure this stuff out, but they provided services that I never would have imagined. They were the ones that helped me get a trust set up, and that was sort of all included with their you know, scope of services. And I have this big fat binder now, thanks to my financial advisement firm that like has all my directives and all my beneficiaries. And all of this is like very, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. And that makes me feel good. I can't say that I don't have some conflict about that because I know that my husband, Phil would, would never have done such a thing. And he would look at how much the financial advisor has been paid over the past year and a half. And he would be horrified. He would be like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? And the thing that I've really had to reconcile is that the way that things worked for the two of us is not necessarily going to work now that it's just me alone and I need more help than I used to. So yes, I pay the financial advisor and I pay an accountant and I pay for a AAA membership because if I get a flat tire somewhere, I don't have a husband to call anymore, that kind of thing. So the way that I think about money is is protective. And it's also with a lot of relief. I have a really fantastic widow support group that I've connected with. Most of us are in really different financial situations. And I can't imagine having to navigate just my grief and his death while also being really stressed about money and having to go back to work after a week. I mean, that sounds undoable. I I don't think I could do that. People do it all the time, I know, and and they don't do it because they want to, right? It's just sort of how things in our society are set up. Bereavement leave is is tiny if it exists at all at most companies, and that's that's a, a whole separate topic. But but I feel so thankful and and such relief that we did all this financial planning. That means I am safe. On the other hand, it's not that I don't ever think about the fact that you know we spent years underspending what we could have, assuming that we would have decades together. And we didn't. So like, should we have gone on more trips to Europe? Should we have, you know, done like made so many more fancy memories? Like possibly. But I also feel really lucky in that. I I do feel like we struck a pretty good balance. Our first year of striving toward financial independence, we were like down to the bone. And then after that, we were like, okay, you know, this was kind of not that fun. Let's open it up a little bit. And we did take more vacations. And we we essentially got to a place where we were able to do what we want, what we wanted. We traveled, we did things. He had expensive bicycles and I would take trips to see Broadway shows because that's my, you know, super fun hobby. And we had no regrets about spending that money, but it's still an unavoidable truth that we could have in retrospect done more had we known that our time was so short. There's no positive side to this, right? There's no way of looking at this and saying, yes, this horrible thing happened to you. But on the other hand, we have people who are listening here today who what you've learned could be really helpful. So let's start with the pre-planning, like looking back and seeing yourself as a young couple. And there are lots of young couples that are listening to this. What can you tell those young couples from what you've learned or some of the steps that they really have to think about that you didn't? 
So the first thing that comes to mind, and also the easiest thing, is a beneficiary designation on all your major accounts. Even if you don't want to combine finances, that's totally fine. If you designate your beneficiaries properly, you will not be in this situation. The reason that I landed in this situation is because this one big account had no beneficiary designation. And so that's why we're here. But on the other hand, I actually do look at that and I feel lucky because it could have easily been something that happened where, you know, he opened that account before we were married. He could have had an old beneficiary designation of his parents or a sibling or a cousin, something like that. So the fact that there wasn't one still meant that I retained most of what what we had earned and put in that account. And that that was good. But that is the easiest and simplest thing that anyone listening can do right now. You can log into your Schwab or your Vanguard or your Fidelity and make sure that those things are exactly what you want them to be. The next thing, of course, is putting in place a will or a trust that holds your assets and that, you know, more officially codifies what exactly you want to happen, not only to your finances, but also, you know, in the case of medical incapacitation, for example, you, if you are medically incapacitated, you need medical decisions, but you also might need financial decisions made on your behalf. You know, your bills are still going to have to get paid. Someone's going to have to be overseeing that aspect of your life. So you need someone who can be empowered to do that. When we get away from the financial aspects and we're talking about other ways to prepare, I think having conversations and ideally documenting your wishes around what you want to happen to your body is a really important aspect. So I was lucky in that we had had many conversations about this, very casual and conversational again, not documented, but certainly enough that I knew exactly what to do. In my case, it was a little tricky because I knew that Phil ultimately wanted to be composted. Hmm. And I admire that choice and it it totally lines up with who he is. Um, but it turned out that that was really tricky logistically to to think about in the immediate aftermath of his death. It varies from state to state what's possible and what types of composting are available. And it turned out that in Colorado at that time, the only option was something akin to like aqua composting, where they Mm -hmm. put your body in a container and they dissolve it with chemicals. And then you're a liquid, which can be used to, you know, fertilize plants. And I don't think that's what he had in mind either. You know, he was more thinking of the like, you know, being wrapped in a shroud and planted under a tree, but that just isn't available here. So I think if you have specific wishes like that, the best thing you can do, the gift that you can give your family and your loved ones is to figure that stuff out in advance. If you want anything beyond a standard cremation or a standard burial, you need to do that legwork yourself because otherwise what you're doing is you're burdening them with that task at a time when they're least equipped to handle it, right? Something like that requires a lot of sensitive thought and critical thinking and decision-making. And you just are not really in a position to do that in the days and hours after your loved one passes away. So do the research, find the company. You know, you don't have to like prepay it all. I don't think that's necessary in most cases, but I think you need to find out what's possible in your area, you need to find the right company. You need to have a phone number or a website that's like, go here, they will handle it. That's that sort of thing. And let's flip it to the other side. Unfortunately, there are going to be some people who don't have these things in place. Talk about what advice you can give to a newly widowed person who has to face the things you faced. Are there any bits of special advice you can give that might make this easier in this very difficult situation? 
Yeah, I think there are two things that come to mind. The first is that it's okay to just do what you need to do to get through it. As long as you're not hurting someone else or yourself, you know, don't go, you know, shooting up drugs to like escape your reality. But if if that means that you need to like ignore your phone and you can't handle all the text messages that are pouring in from people, or if it means you're not sending thank you cards or you're wearing jeans and a t-shirt to the memorial, like whatever, all of that is fine. You do what you need to do to get through it because getting through it is like your new job. <laughs> it, it takes so much work and energy just to, to wake up and get through a single day in the beginning. So just don't judge yourself and don't, don't assume you need to like meet anyone else's emotional needs because honestly, it's just not possible in the beginning. And the second piece of advice I would have for any newly widowed person is to find some other widows and start talking. That was really a huge game changer for me. It's just such a unique experience that unless you've been through it, you really don't understand and you can't. And like, thank God you can't. But having people that you can talk to about who will understand immediately is very, very powerful. And that that's definitely something I would recommend for anyone. Beyond that, of course, you have the usual things like therapy and grief support groups and those types of resources. People are ready for those things at different times and don't rush it. You know, there's no right way to grieve. And people are going to judge you for the ways that you grieve or don't. They absolutely will. And it's really hard to just like not care about that. But to the best of your ability, don't care about that. One piece we haven't talked about but does come up is things like the social media legacy and all the passwords. Did you have passwords to his accounts? Did you know how to access them? Was it yet another stressor to figure out what to do with all that stuff? Mostly it was yet another stressor to figure out, to be honest. The amount, the sheer amount of like accounts any individual has is mind boggling, right? Like you think of all your different banks and all your different credit cards. And then you think of, okay, your car insurance and your mortgage. And then you think of your Facebook and your LinkedIn and your GitHub and your whatever. Just there's so many. It's it's very overwhelming. I made some checklists early on and I worked my way through them, but with varying degrees of ease, right? Some companies make it easy, some don't. Many of them require death certificates. So you're you're handing these out like candy, you're scanning them and emailing them, and it's it's a constant. Facebook was pretty easy, as I recall. I believe he had designated me as a legacy contact, but he also wasn't a huge social media user, so there wasn't really a lot to do there. LinkedIn lets you memorialize an account. That's you can either memorialize it or you can delete it entirely. Both of those honestly felt a little weird to me, like memorializing your like resume essentially is kind of weird, but I didn't want to totally delete it. So I picked that one and now it's memorialized. I really wish that we had had some sort of password plan in place, but the honest answer is that we didn't. And I'm still working through the fallout on that. My most recent example is our router in our house. I, I know the the Wi-Fi password and that's easy, but I don't know the password to the router itself so that I can tweak things or or move it or change the Wi-Fi password. And so I ended up having to get a new router because I, I couldn't access the stuff that I had. I never got into his desktop computer, you know, his work computer I shipped back to his company. His phone I did know the password to. 
which enabled me to get into his Slack, which is how I had like even notified his company that this had happened. So it's just, it's wild. The things that, you know, we're such an individualist society and we all have our personal phones and our personal laptops. And even within our marriages, maybe are not necessarily sharing those passwords, but when you have to like access that information, when you have to find the contacts or whatever, it's such a snarl of a problem to get in. So I would definitely encourage everyone to have some sort of plan, whatever that may be, whether it's a spreadsheet, whether it's, you know, a shared password manager that you're using. There are lots of different solutions, but having nothing is not a solution. Having nothing means you're burdening your loved ones with having to work through all of this in their grief and in the aftermath of your death. So Amy, I'm not going to try to be too presumptuous here, but a simple question to end this conversation. How's life today? It's tolerable. Sometimes it's better than tolerable. I I make a lot of effort to stay socially connected. You know, I have a lot of friends. I, I've traveled a lot since Phil died. I use it as an escape sometimes, you know, as personal therapy, as a distraction. In fact, that just happened last weekend. I got some some kind of sad news on Friday and I had already had kind of a rough week because it was pie day, which was a day that we celebrated. Like I always made pie in our house. My husband was a math person. So that was a big deal. And the following day was the exact one and a half year anniversary of his death, which I didn't really expect to hit me, but it did. But anyway, on Friday, then I got some bad news and I was just really facing down a, a sad weekend alone on the couch. And I I couldn't do it. So I, I went online and I booked a flight to San Francisco and five hours later I was on a plane and that's not really a sustainable coping mechanism. And I know that, but sometimes I do it anyway, because the alternative is, is so bad, but it's not all bad. I feel really lucky in that I have been supported by an army of friends. I have found an excellent therapist who I see twice a week. I have this fantastic widow support group, people all across the country, a small group of us, different ages, different life situations, but we have this one thing in common and that's been a really important thread. So life is is a mixed bag, right? Like it will never be what it was. I'm young enough where like, yes, the idea that I could date and get married again is is certainly on the table, but I have not. I've not really had the stomach to try that yet. So it's it's okay. I mean, most days it's okay. And I have noticed over time that, you know, the, the really bad days and times are fewer and further between now. And I feel grateful for that. Well, Amy, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. We often say that you can't do better unless you know better, but often we can't know or do better unless there's some brave people out there like you to tell us about things we don't know about. And obviously this has not been the easiest of conversations, but I know that there are a lot of people out there who will benefit from hearing of your experiences and hopefully we'll be able to plan, God forbid, after something bad happens, but also maybe before Thank you for telling your story and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. 
Hey, hey, everybody. The Wealth with Purpose Mastermind is well on its way, and I keep on hitting up against a question that we talk about, and we did talk about this in our first meeting, but I've also been having private meetings with different members, and we keep on coming up against the same thing. You see, a lot of the times we figure the reason why we don't have our life in order is that we don't know what we want. We don't know what meaning looks like in our life. We don't know what purpose is. Or furthermore, maybe we have an idea of those things, but we don't really know how to get to a place financially or emotionally to implement them. That's exactly where I was. You know, in 2014, I had no idea what this concept of financial independence was. As you guys have heard me talk about before, Jim Daly, the White Coat Investor, sent me his book, and that taught me the what of financial independence. It taught me what the financial concepts were that allowed me to be financially free, and I knew immediately that I had enough money. That was the knowledge piece, and you would think having the knowledge would immediately give me the strength and the courage to proceed and start living the life I wanted. Well, there was one other knowledge piece is I didn't know what purpose looked like in my life, but that was something I started to figure out fairly quickly when I fell in love with blogging and podcasting and public speaking and all these things I really like to do. But even after I figured that out, it still took a number of years before I had the courage to actually leave my job, to pull away from medicine and spend most of my time creating. And this is something I see over and over again. Most of us eventually get to this place where we know exactly what we want and we know how to get there. But the problem is knowledge and action are two different things. It's easy for you to figure out. Well, I shouldn't say easy. It's quite possible for you to figure out what you want in life. Many of us think that's the stumbling block, but I can tell you, at least in my experience, it wasn't the knowledge, it was the courage to act. And so in 2014, when I realized that I didn't want to live this life anymore, it took me years to wind down from medicine because even if I could logically work it out in my mind, that didn't necessarily help me take the steps that I needed to move forward. In fact, I don't know if I ever would have unless I went to this Camp Fi in 2018, the Camp Fi Midwest, where I met people like me, people who were going through what I was going through, understood what I was having trouble with, and also had the knowledge about the finances and why I could do what I wanted to do. They gave me the courage to actually act. And maybe that's the point of all this. Knowledge is key, but community actually is what I think spurs you on to do those things you want to do. It gets you past that barrier of knowledge without action. And I think that's one of our biggest problems in this community or any community is we attain the knowledge and yet we don't know how to move forward. We don't know how to act. Being part of a community, having people to support you, people to be accountable to, but also to emotionally stand behind you, push you forward, and be there if you succeed or fail. I think that's the key ingredient. And so I'm not saying you have to go join a mastermind. I certainly am not saying you have to come join Wealth With Purpose. But I am saying that you need to get your team together, whether that's friends or family members. Certainly some of it can be advisors like accountants, or if you want a financial advisor, maybe that's someone who can be on your team. 
But it's more than that. It's people who have both gone through what you're going through, and so they have the experience, and then people who eventually want to go through what you're going through because they can learn from you and you can learn from them. And then you need some people who are at a similar place, who are struggling it out just like you are, someone who you can get on the phone and discuss when things aren't going well. I think this closes that gap between knowledge and action I think that gap is what's holding most of us back. So if you're listening to this, I hope we at Earn and Invest are part of your community. But I also hope you have other communities, people who are much closer to you, people who you get to discuss your hopes and dreams, uh, people that support you, uh, not people who tell you you can't do that or you're dreaming too big, uh, because clearly you don't want those kind of people spurring you on. It's people who believe in you, understand you, and want to help bridge that gap. And I think that's what really most of us are missing in this journey to live the lives we want to live. Certainly, if you want to be part of our mastermind, you go to earnandinvest.com slash mastermind. That's wealth with purpose. But you know, you don't have to even be part of a mastermind. It's more having people out there to support you uh, who can help you make this journey because I guess the one thing I'm really realizing from all of this is you really can't do it alone. And even if you could, I don't know if you'd enjoy it nearly as much. Okay. I leave things running just for a moment or two. Um... Just to catch the after show. You know, thank you for doing that. I mean, that's not just lip service. It's really brave and it's reliving trauma that you've already gone through for the benefit of other people. And um, that's courage, right? Like there's very few things that we look at in life and say that's really courage. But but reliving your own trauma for the benefit of someone else certainly is. And telling your story is important. Thank you. I I feel so grateful to know Mindy and that she knows people like you and that I had met you before and read your book. And I having access to a platform like this to amplify the story and these risks and what people should do is is, um, you know, a, a comfort right now. So I'm happy about that. And by the way, I mean, obviously you no one can tell you how to feel, but certainly from dealing with people who've grieved as well as my own family, you know, when my father died when I was young and all those kind of things, you do what you have to to survive and you don't have to answer to anyone, not even the memory of the person you love. Like if you need a financial advisor to make this work, you get a financial advisor. If you need to do things differently, you do them your way. You do them the way that makes it palatable, bearable, and hopefully one day you know, joyous for you. And uh, there's no apologizing for that. That's you're doing what you need to do. And and, um, you change. Like I was talking to my mom recently, you know, about my dad dying. And before my dad died, my mom was like, my dad was four years older than my mom. And so he was 40 when he died and she was 36. And he handled everything. Like, she was, like, it was almost parental on some level. Like, he did everything. He paid all the bills. He managed the money. He made all the main decisions. Which is funny, because I was seven when my dad died. And the mom I eventually knew owned her own company and is an accountant and was the boss, right? She ran our house. She ran everything. But So she changed. Um, 
in ways that as a child were great, right? She took care of us. She did what needed to be done. Um, it wasn't a change she wanted to make. It was a forced change. Um, yeah, but she did what. She, but she did what she had to do. And when I was hearing you talk about it, that's exactly, you know, you do what you have to do. All change is not bad. You are just doing, you know, you're creating and living your own reality, which is pivoted. And that's totally fine. And in fact, beneficial. Uh, yeah, I mean, it. that has been the hardest lesson is, um, is that I'm now doing so many things he would not do or would not approve of or whatever, but that I have, I feel like I have to. And it took a while to make peace with that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine, so, so I don't know what happens after people die, but I imagine if he has any knowledge of what you're doing now, he would be, you know, very agreeable probably to most (laughs) of the things you do. Um, Realizing again that you've got to, you know, you've got to make the life decisions that make it manageable for you. And um yeah. So thank you. Thank you for being yeah. vulnerable. Thank you for putting this out there. I think there are so many really good lessons from what we talked about. And I think these are more one of a kind conversations because most of the time people aren't brave enough to have them. Well, thank you. That's really nice of you to say it, uh, it is vulnerable and it is scary, but well, it's getting easier. I guess this is my second interview about it and there's going to be more. And yeah. um, I just, I want to get the message out there and, I was really glad I got to talk to you just given your, your background. And, you know, I knew that you would have a unique take and I felt like your questions were really right on. So thank you for that. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more and they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.